Blog Talk Radio. used to doing an evening show. It's ridiculous. Um, My name is Lee Douglas, and you are listening to Old Time Rock and Roll, and we are live right here this morning, and uh, this is our special. This is our third special, uh, which we call Rock and Roll College, and it's all about teaching the students about something that that they are not even aware really exists, except as something, ah, that's too old, we don't listen to it. And uh, we, um, this is, like I said, this is the third show, and we are with, I believe, Bruce Marianelli, who is the um, professor or teacher, if you will, at Alvernia College. Bruce, how are you this morning? Lee, I'm fine. How are you this morning? Oh, I, I guess I'm I'm really good. Uh, I've been under the weather. This this uh, really the weather here is is just great. But uh, you kind of as you get older, you know you you can't do these things like go out and uh, you know even though 55, 60 is really would be you know summer for you guys up there. Uh, for me to sit out there and sweat and paint and. Uh, uh, in the cool weather, and uh, I got a little cold, but everything else is great, and uh, looking forward to this show as I always do. Good. We're glad to be here, and uh, able to spend some time with you again. I have uh, seven students with me today. One is absent through a family emergency, and they are... Right, just- we, we allow that. We allow that. We're loaded with questions, and I have quite a few number of these students have a sense of humor. Uh-oh. They're nurses. Three of them are nurses, and they are really, they, they have a sense of humor. I don't know how else, but better to explain it to you. <laughs> so um, they've kept me on my toes for the past six weeks. Oh, that's good. That's good. I, uh, you know, I was, uh, I've been kind of doing a lot of research here on, uh, on some of the questions they asked and that I've already answered, and so I, I'm ready for them. Uh, well, you know I always am. I, my mind is just a steel trap. I just wish it would open once in a while. So let's let's go ahead. Let's uh, get started. Um, would you like one of them to call you, or you, you want to just stay on my line? No, I think uh, if they call, it's better, because this way you can also listen in. And, uh, yeah, let them call, and we're ready. For, I'm ready for them, and i got a, a million... Answers to questions I haven't even heard yet. I like it. That what is it? Karnak. Okay. Mm, three four seven. Four four six. Four two six. Thirty one seventy. And I will put them on, and uh, we can uh, get started as soon as we. Get okay. Out. I'm all ready. 
Okay, who's calling in first? Who's calling first? Damn, my nurses are giving me a hard time. Carol, Carol will be calling you first. Can I do this on the Internet, too, live now or not? Yes, Look, you can. Uh, I'm trying to find it here. I, my, I'm on the site, blogtalkradio.com, Lee slash Douglas. Request time, all the time rock and roll. I want to thank you. No. Where would I find this? What was that? I just hear him on the phone. <laughs> all right, we're on. We're on live. So uh, again, give your name, and then we'll uh, get started. Okay, Carol. Hi, my name's Carol, and I just want to ask, how much of an influence do you think Elvis Presley made on the history of rock and roll? Oh well, <laughs> that's that's like a question that. What I guess the best way to put it is that Elvis was. Uh, he actually put rock and roll on the map, as they say. You know, uh, Elvis was a, uh, a performer that had something which I don't care. You know, um, they're always said, you know, especially what's going around today. But I believe that uh, Elvis was uh, a, an individual that that would have risen to the top no matter what because he had a certain. Um, he had a certain quality which was missing in most, you know, you see what it is, is that rock and roll was, at that point in time, was basically black music. And Elvis being white, uh, this made it a little bit easier to transcend the music over to, to the white kids, even though they had already picked up on it. I mean, look, even today, um, it, you have the white kids listening to the black music uh, and in the rap. And, of course, it's different music. And, of course, I don't want to go in to say what I think about rap. But, <laughs> but your, your basic, uh, the, the basic thing is that he had the ability. So if, if, if today somebody came along, a white kid and was, you know, I'm not talking about someone like Eminem, uh, who, who cares about candy anyway, but you, you, um, there's, there's something that is not acceptable yet, and Elvis made it acceptable, and that's the best way I can describe it to you, is that um, he made rock and roll acceptable to the white audiences. I guess okay, that's the thank best you. way. To say. You're welcome. If you have any other questions, I'll answer them all. Doesn't matter. <laughs> we okay, we have on. loads of time. Lori's next. Lee. Yes. Okay. Lori will be calling you next. All right. You know what? I was also interested. I always. Uh, how big is Pottsville? How large is that? Uh-oh. Did we lose everybody? Pottsville? Yes. About 15,000. Well, that's not too bad. Uh, listen, yeah. by the way, I've gotten... Uh, we have a little bit of a problem here. i got to just check back in because... Uh, 
I lost my switchboard here, so let me get okay. back in that. Okay. Because we, we all go ahead. I'm sorry. You do this show how often? Uh, this uh, you you do this like three times a year, I think you said. Uh, this class. Three times, whatever they schedule it when the students have it. All right. Now remember that if I can hear that, um, the thing in the background, it's hard because yeah. you're about seven seconds. There's a seven-second delay. delay, yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm having a problem getting the switchboard back up. All right, here I am. Okay. All right, here we go. I've well, got I'll our next that, person up. I'll turn the computer back down, and I'll put you on speakerphone. All right, whatever you'd like to do, that's fine. Okay. Um, hi, you're on Old Time Rock and Roll. Hi, hi it's Lori. Okay, Lori, what can I do for you today? I actually have two questions for you. You the can have ten. I don't care. But I just did two. I did my project on Roy Orbison, uh -huh. and I heard that he had filed a lawsuit to recoup royalties from when he was younger. Do you know if that was ever settled? Well, uh, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, the entire rock and roll industry uh, did that. Uh, okay. You know, uh, most of them never got the money back. Uh, for example, I, I don't know if you if you heard of, of your own uh, uh, Philadelphia guy by the name of uh, Charlie Gracie. Okay, no. Uh, and Charlie uh, had one of the biggest hits of the early rock and roll era for a white guy, and it was called Butterfly. And he sued his record company. As Charlie is still performing, and he's a very, very good, good guy, and he believes in doing the right thing. And he sued the guy who probably owed him about, yeah, I would say, a good $250,000 or more in royalties. And um, he won. And it cost him his career because it just so happened that uh, the uh, part owner of the record label was a guy by the name of Dick Clark. Uh, okay. <laughs> and Dick Clark refused to have him on his show anymore, and if he couldn't get any play, any record plays, he was out of a job. So uh -huh. I, I would tell you that uh, no matter who it is, uh, I spoke to people who were in a lot of the doo-wop groups, they were so glad to, to sit up in front of 10,000 screaming teenagers and have girls throw themselves at them was good enough for them back in the 50s, honestly. Uh, so I would doubt very much if Roy Orbison got that money because, honestly, the recording techniques, uh, you know, as far as money was concerned, and they really had, they had them by the throat. Uh, they, you know, and it was, it was money that was, you see, when we're talking about Sun Records, they... They paid very little. Mm -hmm. and Go ahead. Okay, the other one was Frankie Lyman. Do you know what happened to him? Yeah, he shot himself. Did he? How old was yeah. he? Yeah. Uh, he was in his 20s, and uh, Frankie basically was one of those singers who thought more of himself than the record industry did. And uh, he was... You know, being one of the first, you know, after all, 30, he is a 13-year-old kid in 1956, 
who all of a sudden was thrust into uh, the spotlight, and um, he began to say, well, I don't need these, these guys, these teenagers. Uh, I could do it by myself. So he went ahead and he, and he went on his own, and then he started by, I think, at 18, he got married the first time. Then I think he got married three more times, once to uh, Zola Taylor, who was the, um, the uh, only female voice of the platters. And I guess he, uh, of course, like all of them did, they got, they got uh, into drugs. And uh, finally, at 20, I guess it was 21, 22, something around that era, uh, he, he realized he had nothing. He had no career because his cuteness was gone. His voice was not that good. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he realized that all these, these women that he had married wanted money from him, and he had nothing. So he just said, well, i got to end it all, and he did. Oh, that's interesting. All right, well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a good day. I uh, sure Bye-bye. will. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I, I, I wish they'd have more questions, I, you know, follow-ups and all that kind of stuff, because uh, I've got so much, Bruce, that's, that's going on here. Um, I have a question okay. for you on what Lori just said with Frankie yeah. Lyman. Now, yeah. he married um, the, the uh, female vocalist from which group? The Platters. Platters. Wasn't she significantly older than him? Uh, to, to an extent, a few years, yeah. But then again, you know, uh, when you're big and you're popular, it was just something else. Yeah, they all seemed so much older. They really weren't. But there was a certain um, regality, I guess, of, of, that the platters had. They weren't like the rest of the groups. Mm-hmm. There was something, you know, the platters were accepted everywhere. Uh, they did um, amazing, uh, you know, things at, at supper clubs, and, and they really were able to, to transcend uh, the uh, rock and roll label uh, where mm-hmm. the others could not. And uh, I think Zola Taylor was was probably when when Frankie was was thirteen. I think Zola was probably nineteen or twenty. So and that's you know that's a big age difference at, at that at that age. At that age, but by the time he got married to her, she was not even uh, you know the, the Platters were were not as popular as they were, and and uh, she was looking for something else to do also. So she did. <laughs> <laughs> but all right. So who else do we have on the phone now? Let's see. Uh, let's see if I can. Three four zero one. Just a minute. I'm working on getting there on here. It's Eric. Eric, just one moment. I I can't seem to make you live here. There we go. Okay, you're on the air. All right. I have a question for you. If uh, Ray didn't play such right, a wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on one second. That the, we're getting that echo back, so either turn down the speakerphone or the the uh, computer or whatever, and that'll help us. Go ahead. Okay. If Ray didn't play such an important role in rock and roll history, do you think that people would have viewed rock and roll different? Good question, but the answer is still going to be no. Uh, it was a start. Uh, when when Alan Freed pushed rock and roll into New York, uh, the 
there was such an animosity because of the race, yes. But then then along came Elvis Presley, and they didn't like him either. Yeah. So uh, they thought he was vulgar, and they thought he was, um, you know, too sexual for the, you know. So I think that nothing would have changed because, honestly, in the uh, in the forties, uh, I, I I think they felt the same way about Frank Sinatra. They uh, they considered him. Uh, matter of fact, if I remember correctly, some of the the people who who uh, first listen to Frank Sinatra, they said, look at this skinny little kid, how could these these girls swoon over him? He's he's he was I think hundred and twenty pounds dripping wet at the time. And uh I don't think um the uh, parents thought much of him either. And uh the best way I can describe it to you is when I was listening and uh, and uh, became a rock and roll fan in the early in the fifties and my parents heard Elvis my mother would react saying how disgusting he was and uh, and how he couldn't sing and he could and then the beatles came along in 1963 and uh, and then they would listen to them and they would look at me and my mom would come over and she'd say what happened to that nice elvis presley kid <laughs> so you know it's it's uh it's it's i don't think it would have changed anything uh, one more question. Sure. After Alan Freed's career pretty much got ruined with the payola scandal, did he try any other kind of like rock and roll ventures, like tried any more radio shows or create any more TV shows? Well, it, you know, the whole thing with Alan Freed, by the way, was that um, Alan Freed would not uh, – rat on his friends, I guess it's the best way, and associates. And that's why he was not given immunity to testify. And basically, Dick Clark was allowed to to write his own um, statement. And Alan Freed worked for the same company, ABC, and demanded that he be given the right to do the same um, thing that whatever Dick Clark signed, he wanted to sign, and they refused him. So we said, well, I'm not going to sit here and, and get off so that my friends have to, are going to go to jail. So he basically refused to sign it, and he didn't testify. Uh, he could not be charged for anything, in the, in, that is federally, and, but he was charged in New York State where they had no such law. He moved out to California, and he was given a radio show. But I think Alan Freed was dead be- long before he died. And uh, he was a huge drinker. I mean, he was a drinker. Uh, he got into an automobile accident in the very early 50s. I mean, talking about 1950, 1951. And it tore up most of his face. And uh, after so much surgery and pain, he started drinking heavily. Uh, also, his his parents were uh, not happy with what he was doing, and uh, he could not get them back. Uh, he 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 missed them, and he and the only way he knew how to handle that was by drinking. And uh, so he'd been drinking for so many years. It, it when he really went into a depression. 
1960 when he left. Uh, probably if he had had some sense of, of, of what he did, he probably could have outdone it. He, would have, he could have waited a few years and then gotten back in the business. But uh, Alan couldn't sit still. He was a huge uh, defender of what's right. And he just went right out and tried to get a job. And he did get a job in a, in a Los Angeles radio station. And he was playing rock and roll. But there was just that great quality that he had had left him. He just didn't have what what he once had. You know, it, it's almost like when you're defeated, you cannot, uh, you know, go on as you did before. And I guess that that's what killed him. I think within a few years, he just drank himself to death, and he died of sclerosis of the liver. Uh, did he have any kids? Was he married? Yes, he was. Well, <laughs> married. My God, he was married four times. Uh, his, his, the wife that I knew best was Jackie. Jackie and Alan would sit for hours and talk to teenagers anywhere about their problems. And we all came to him with our problems. And when he left Jackie uh, to go with his secretary, Inga, and Inga was, uh, I guess he wasn't exactly the, uh, the best thing for Alan, but Alan had two children, he had Elena and Lance, and uh, Lance is, is still in the business of promoting his dad's uh, records, and, and uh, his, he has a beautiful site up there, which is run by his wife, Judy, and uh, they are just continuing on, just dealing with Alan, the Alan Freed legacy, and it, it is a great legacy because the man was, was very unusual in this business. Okay, last question for you. Sure. If Elvis was a black singer, do you think his career would have been the same? No. That was that didn't even take any time. No, he would have been. Uh, the, the, what What was special about it is remember, in those days, uh, the blacks were not. Although they they did have some money, they didn't have a lot of money, and they couldn't purchase the records like the white kids could. Mm-hmm. So very simply. Uh, no, there is no way that Elvis would be what he is today. All right, thank you. All right, you're welcome. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. All right, let's see who else is next. Good question, by the way. Not yet, but that is, I've got some good questions here. I'm enjoying these. I have a couple for you when they're done. Sure, sure. I don't know who's on now. Nobody yet. Nobody yet? Just you and I. Just you and I. Ah, now I've got two people on. <laughs> Think George first. I think his phone is dying. Okay. Wait. Well, yes, somebody just died. All right. 9027 is up. And I'm just going to put them on. Wait one second. And boom. It never happened. Okay. Here we go again. Click. All right. You're on. 9027. All right, Lee. This is George Zaborski. Um, I have a quick question here about Elvis. Um, There's no such thing as a quick question when you're asking me. Uh, okay. Um, most people, you know, I don't want to be sticking the mud to say, you know, and mo- most people say that Elvis was the king of rock and roll, and he, and you know, it's all this glory he gets. Um, in my opinion, I, I disagree with that. Um, what are your views on that? Who would you coin the king of rock and roll? Well, I 
That's a great question. It's not a quick question. I knew it was because uh, I thought very long and hard about this answer, and there is no king of rock and roll, but there was a royal family. Right. And the royal family goes back a lot further than you think. The royal family of rock and roll starts in 1898 with a gentleman by the name of Thomas Edison. Because without him, there would have been no, no records, no recordings, and no rock and roll. Then from there, you go to the, the gentleman who, who uh, became the uh, watermark for performers. And that is a gentleman by the name of Al Jolson. The man was a performer par excellence. There was nobody like him. He could hold an audience in the palm of his hand for hours, and all they would do was scream for more. And then you go to rock and roll itself, and there was a royal family. You had, as far as um, presenting rock and roll, it was, there was Alan Freed. Uh, then you had the king of, of the... New Orleans rock and roll. You have Fats Domino, and then you had the king of, of Scream, which was um, Little Richard, and then you had the, the king of country rock and roll, which was Jerry Lee Lewis, and then you have um, the king of, of the guitar, which was uh, Chuck Berry. So you, you put all of these guys together, and you have a royal family. But to say that there is one king which is silly anyway, but no, there is a royal family that just will will remain with us for a, another century, and and uh, so much will will be thought about this. And there's just so many people out there. You know, uh, for example, I was I was thinking about well, do you put in this royal family any doo-wop artists? Right, and and. There's just, you know, you've got to have one of each because there is no, there's no one person who, who transcends all types of music. And, and I, I was thinking long and hard about who would you put in as, as the, the doo-wop to that family. And there is no way because everybody had an equal hand in, in, in the, the type of music that, that you're listening to. And it's, there's no way that you could actually make such a determination. But there's just so many people that, that have a, a special quality. Bobby Darren was somebody like that. And to a great extent, there, you know, you have the, the people like Ray Stevens. Now, you never can consider him the king of anything. But yet uh, Ray Stevens had a quality of humor that uh, was, you know, far ahead of, you know, Weird Al. And there's just so many people that you could put in a royal family that you cannot say there would be one king. Well, that's that's pretty interesting. Thanks. Um, You're very welcome. Yeah. Another another question here I got for you. Um, uh, we were talking a lot about Tin Pan Alley, mm -hmm. and um, when I was uh, doing a little bit of research on that, um, I found that there's they're trying to have a reemergence of that. And uh, New York City's trying to get some funding for that. What's your opinion on that? You think that that something like that would work? Well, you got to understand that the the idea of of, of redoing a Tin Pan Alley is just uh, a way to get more tourists into town. It, it, you know, Tin Pan Alley was not a place in itself. It was it was more of a, 
Well, I, I don't know if uh, Bruce went into the Brill Building, which um, had some very special, uh, ro- uh, you know, recording uh, studios there, uh, and and this type of sounds that came out. Tin Pan Alley was just a place where the songwriters hung out, and uh, you know would sing to anybody who would listen and try and plug their songs. So it was not. Anything, in my opinion, now that, you know, because we're going back into the 30s and 20s, 30s, and 40s here too. Uh, I, I don't see it as a um, as as anything other than a, a a way to to get tourist dollars into the city. Right. So just like a genre type thing. Yeah, I mean, like it's not a genre dance type thing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's almost like an old, you know, like a rock and roll hall of fame. Because you know, you had right. great people there. You had uh, George M. Cohan and 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 uh, people like that who who played their music and tried to get people to listen and and uh, get you know producers to to like his music and and want to you know sign up, but I don't consider it anything more than that. I, I uh, but I think, you know you can't hurt it to make music uh, and give it another outlet to to make people who do not understand what music is uh, and the history of music. It, it can't hurt. Yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate your answers. All right. Not a problem. All right. Thank you. Bye. All right. Let's see. Um, Bruce, how's everything going over there? It is going great. How much time do we have today to speak with you? Uh, are we on a time limit uh, for your show? Uh, you got as much. Well, let's see. I gave it an, I gave it 90 minutes. I don't think it's going to take that long, but uh, we have plenty of time. Okay. Um, next is Melissa. She, she Showing up on your board shortly. She just dialed in. Okay, I'm gonna. All right, you're on, Melissa. You're unmuted. Go ahead. Hi, Lee. How are you? I am absolutely great. That's good. I have a two-part <laughs> question for you. Sure. Mm-hmm. Talking about the new movie Cadillac Records. Mm-hmm. Um, we were wondering was Cadillac Records real, and who was Etta James? None of us really know who she is. Now, who is that? Etta James. Etta James. Yeah. Etta James was the greatest blues singer. She still is, by the way. Etta James is the greatest blues singer ever. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, she uh, beats out Aretha Franklin. Uh, she she is the greatest blues singer that I can imagine. I mean, I, I, better than Billie Holiday. I think she is absolutely terrific. Uh, she was just a wonderful, wonderful singer. She just had a voice on her that that I thought was so much uh, richer and deeper and fuller than, than uh, as I said, Aretha Franklin. Uh, as far as Cadillac Records, I don't believe there was such a... Um, I think they just... Tainted, they, it was a great, it's a great name, but I don't believe that uh, Cadillac Records existed, at least not in the genre of rock and roll that I know of. But uh, I'm sure... It has a great deal to do with um, the certain, you know, the, the labels that led up to Motown. Okay, and the reason why I say that, and, and uh, I'll try and kind of bring this quickly into perspective, uh, Motown was Barry Gordy's uh, baby. But as far as I'm concerned, the father of Motown was a guy by the name of Jackie Wilson because Barry Gordy produced a lot of Jackie Wilson's records, and Barry Gordy used the money 
that he made off of Jackie Wilson to start Motown Records. So just just in that vein, I would say that it really encompasses a lot of record labels um, into one. Almost, you know, when they do uh, shows like American Hot Wax, they kind of push a million different things into one venue just to to make it more interesting. So, uh, no, I don't think there was a Cadillac Records. Okay, thank you. That's it? I thought you had a two-parter. Or was that somebody else? No, that was... <laughs> There was there was two questions about the Cadillac Records and then who was Etta James. Oh, okay. And I'm telling you, you if you have not heard Etta James, you must go on and listen because you've you got to find some stuff on her. She had a voice and listen for Trust in Me, which was her very first hit, which is absolutely phenomenal. Okay? All right. Thank you. All righty. Well, you Lee? What's that? Yes, Bruce. Uh, just yes. out of curiosity, I'm I'm sort of leaning towards that that name of that movie, Cadillac Records, is trying to uh, cover the Chess Brothers and their record company. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen uh, too much. I haven't seen TV for a while. I haven't had a chance, and I haven't even heard of this until the students mentioned it today. But I'm sort of leaning since it's dealing with Chuck Berry and some of the, uh, if not most of the uh, Chess record artists of the early '50s. Mm-hmm. That it would be good with that with that uh, record company and the Chess Brothers, but it's very possible. And I'm looking forward to seeing that movie. Yeah, uh, I am too. While I'm waiting for another student to get online with you, uh, recently Sirius and XM merged. Uh, I noticed since I have Sirius, and I listen to them in the car the '50s. Do they have mm-hmm. two different, uh, basically two different? Uh, Record libraries, I mean, I know they're going to have some records that they, they both stations would have, satellite stations would have, but I've noticed a lot of different songs showing up now on, on the uh, 50s band that I haven't heard. I'm, I don't know. Um, you know, when you have money, you can do just about anything. Um, the... the from what I gather, uh, the mis- I think it was a mistake to merge. And I'll be honest with you, um, I don't think XM radio, I don't think satellite radio is going to last. And I'll give you a good reason. I believe that by the time, let's see, we're in 2000, almost 2009, I would say within two years the technology of Bluetooth and wireless will allow the entire computer to be fed through your car and that shows like here and on blog talk radio you will be able to pick up any show you want right through your car stereo and I think that the fact that this is free basically and the people will decide they will stop paying for satellite radio because it's it will be obsolete by then. That's interesting because uh, I'll be honest with you, and I'm not you know I'm not blowing smoke at you. What I've done is I recorded your earlier right uh, shows that you had on the other mm-hmm. uh, internet provider, and when I'm right. in the car by myself, I like to put those in and listen to them. Right. Uh, so you know what you're saying, you know, sort of makes a little bit of sense if you can. Oh, you know, absolutely. I, 
right now. Uh, I was just, I was just, uh, I, I didn't buy one. <laughs> I wish you'd love to. <laughs> but uh, they have uh, USB ports in the car right now. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it will not be long before the wireless, uh, I mean, you have wireless on your cell phone, then you will have that wireless connected right through to your car, and you'll be able to pick up absolutely anything you want from the from any uh, Internet station, and I think that the satellite will go bye-bye because, look, they're paying huge sums of money to to that kook, uh, what's his name, the, uh, you know, that guy with the long curly hair. Uh, <laughs> I can't even think of his name right now. Uh, Howard Stern. That, yeah, Howard Stern. Uh, just enormous sums of money. And uh, that's just ridiculous. Eventually, this is going to have to come to an end because, you know, somebody has to pay for that. Mm-hmm. And 10 bucks a month or 12 bucks a month ain't going to do it eventually. So I'm saying that within two, three years, when uh, people are really starting to buy cars again, uh, they will have all this technology and satellite radio will be a thing of the past. Interesting. Okay. Uh, you have another uh, person on the line waiting to speak to you, Amanda. Amanda, just one moment, and you're on. Hi, this is Amanda. I was just wondering if, since a lot of our music originated from the African-American slaves that were brought over here, what do you think music would be like today if the African-Americans didn't come over here when they did? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I'd say quite different, and, and and it's hard to almost imagine because I, I probably think maybe we would be uh, dancing the minuet. <laughs> because, I mean, look at it. I mean, we're talking way back in the 1920s, and here's, and I was talking about um, Al Jolson, and Al Jolson, of course, did everything he did in, in blackface for a white artist, and, and he was, and he had a certain quality that he took from the early um, African Americans uh, who were slaves, and 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 uh, he listened and was very uh, in, intent on going down to New Orleans and listening to all the the black performers down there. So I would say honestly that uh, there would not be much of a music industry at all uh, if if uh, the blacks hadn't come over, uh, whether forced or otherwise, but. There's, there's a great deal of, of fact that there also wouldn't be anything because the blacks themselves didn't have it over in, 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 uh, in Africa or wherever they came from. They got it here when they, when they were suffering and they needed a way to, to um, pour out their feelings. So they developed the blues, and without the blues, there would be no rock and roll. Thank you. You're very welcome, Amanda. All right, Amanda's gone. And, Bruce, it's you and I. It's you and I. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll give you one of our cells to use. I'll have another student call you in a minute. He has to borrow a cell phone. Uh, you know today, Bobby Darren, uh, yes. big hit, Mac the Knife, this week was number one. That's right. Uh-huh. That's right. No, I have, well, you know, that's I have, why I did that show again. I love that that Bobby Darren show I did. I, I yeah, that's a good show. Now, I have a question for you. Sure. Uh, 
you grew up in New York City as a teenager. Right. Mm-hmm. Your recollections of you know being a young teenager, you know, being impressionable, and this rock and roll phenomena hitting hitting this country at this time. I'm sure you were you know were lucky enough to get to the theaters and see some of these groups perform. Mm-hmm. Your recollection: What groups are the most memorable? You know, in their concerts and performances, and could you play some of their music later on when you put this together for me? Well, here's what here's what I'm doing. Uh, I'm gonna what I'll do is I'll do that for you anyway, but. Uh, let me. I, which which part? I should answer the first part first. Um, as far as a group, there's only one. The Coasters. There was okay. never, never, any group. Well, maybe the Isley Brothers, but the the Coasters performed uh, were absolutely hilarious. But I also noticed that. Their performance that I saw at the Brooklyn Paramount and the performance I saw when I was a little idiot kid that had enough nerve to take myself and two other white kids to the middle of Harlem to go to the Apollo Theater to see them with two totally different shows. They were so hilarious, I have never forgotten their performance. Never. They changed their uh, show? Uh, yes. They were they would change their shows for a white audience as compared to a black audience? Yes. When they did a show at, um, at the Paramount, they sang their songs, they did a little shtick, and they got off. When they appeared at the, at the, at the, at the, at the uh, Apollo in Harlem, they did an act. Okay? They, it was a totally different thing. They were on for, you know, when you, when you worked for Freed, you basically, uh, especially if you weren't the headliner, you did three or four songs and you got off. When, uh, when the coasters appeared at the Apollo, they did an act. That means 30, 35 minutes. Right. So totally different. More, more geared towards the black audience? No, I wouldn't say that. I would just say it was an act. It was funny. Uh, they... It was oh they had you know what we called uh, the difference between a musical number and a production number in, in uh, you know musical performances on, on the screen. This was more of a production. It was uh, it wasn't just sing your songs and go get off. This was an entire performance. It was their show? Yeah, I mean, and they weren't even the stars. I mean, they weren't the headliners, but they were. That was it. 30, 30, 35 minutes. And if they were called back, they were called back for more. They did more. You know, I mean, it was just, it was different. Uh, as far as uh, individual performers, uh, Jackie Wilson, by far. Um, Jackie Wilson would be one. Jerry Lee Lewis would be another. Uh, Chuck Jackson, Larry Williams, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, and the late Bo Diddley. They would be standouts. I tell you what, it must have been really exciting to grow up in New York City and see all these acts. At that, you, at you, that know, you know, Bruce, can you imagine seeing the names I just mentioned and paying the exorbitant sum of $5 to sit in the first row? 
you couldn't get through the door for five dollars a day for some of these groups. No, I mean today, little Richard gets if he can if he if they can push him and roll him up on the stage, uh, he gets uh, uh, you know you get forty dollars fifty dollars a ticket. Uh huh. And here was he would be on with uh, Chuck and Jerry Lee Lewis and so many others all at the same time. So it was indeed a, a pleasure to watch all these guys perform. Okay. I will let you go. I have another student, sure. phone, mm-hmm. and um, Thomas is his name. All right. Thomas is, uh, this thing isn't working too good this morning. Let's see. Come on. It's Saturday you're morning. On. Yeah. Okay. You're on the air. Okay. It's Tom, Tom Donlin. Um, I just have a question about Bobby Darren. Mm-hmm. His mother was one of the Mayflower descendants or whatever. So who, what artist actually uh, influenced his style of music because he had so many different styles? Well, remember that, that his mother was not his mother. It was his sister. Uh, that's what they found out. The, the yeah. person he thought was his mother was not. It was actually his sister that he grew up with was actually his mother. Uh, so that's kind of depressing to start with. Uh, he was a, Actually, he was a big fan of, um, of Frank Sinatra. And, you know, there was no um, really rock and roll before him. You know, he, he just grew up in, the, in that era where, you know, you, you heard Frank Sinatra and uh, those groups. And, and if you listen to the Bobby Darin show that I did, uh, you'll find that his early work was really just copies of other people's work. Uh, he did you? Have, I don't you know if you've listened to the Bobby Darren show yet. Yes, but if you okay, well you know there was pity, pity, pity. Miss Kitty was like uh, you know what, Little Richard, and uh, a lot of the stuff that he did was was copies in the early days. And when he started to be his, his own self. Remember every every record he did was uh, he made up the song titles of of you know to put in the in that lyric. So yeah, I would say he he was most affected by by people like uh, Dick Haynes and uh, Frank Sinatra and that genre. That's why he so quickly within within two years he was out of of being successful. He had moved into uh, the pop vein and out of rock and roll. Didn't take him long. Yeah. The style that uh, that I noticed was similar to that now is Harry Connick Jr. He plays kind of the same style of the like the big band mm-hmm. music. So I was just yeah Harry Connick yeah Harry Connick Jr. Of course was started out basically by by doing uh, you know Frank Sinatra stuff and uh, yeah it's it's there, there's a uh, and what is it Michael Bublé I think yes also. Yeah, this is a uh, a genre that deserves to be kept. Um, to me, and I, and I grew up on the in the tail end of it. It took me a long time to appreciate that kind of that kind of music, because um, I grew up right at the end of that and right into the beginning of rock and roll. And as a teenager, you, you just don't want to hear a song like "Little White Lies." It was just you know not the same jump and excitement in it. But uh, today, it would be a little different. So, But that's what I would say. Bobby Darren had, had so many influences, and I think the influence as far as his later 
where he went into folk, it, it was basically the influence of, of uh, his own mind and, and the sadness he felt over the death of Robert Kennedy, who was a friend of his. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. You're very welcome. Okay. Uh, you have me back. Okay, Bruce, what I was saying is that I'm not going to, I'm going to leave this up just as it is. Okay. All right, I, I've decided because I have a show coming up Wednesday, which is probably, in my estimation, one of the most bold things I've done. I've done a show on Dion and the Belmonts. And, you know, as I remember sitting there watching Dion and the Belmonts, uh, I was extremely bored by their performance. Really? This is back in 19, you know, 58, when they did I Wonder Why, and, and I kind of was nodding off because they weren't much of a performer. But now, as I sit back and listen to the music, Mm-hmm. And then I got a hold of uh, Dion's albums, The Bronx and Blue, which was done two years ago, and some of the other stuff. This man has an incredible, and he, I don't know if he's very well liked in the business. I'll be honest with you. I don't know. Uh, I tried to get in touch with him, and he had people call me, you know, that, that bit. And they, I guess when they spoke to me, they weren't, impressed enough that the show was good enough to have Dion on. But I'm going to tell you, the man is incredible. He is a talent that has uh, gone by the wayside. You do not... I heard one of the songs he wrote, which just turned me into tears. It turned me into jello. Uh, And when you listen to it, uh, after Wednesday, when I put that show up, you will be impressed, too. he did a song, which I put on at the end, called I Used to Be a Brooklyn Dodger. Okay. And for those of you who don't know, the Brooklyn Dodgers, you know, uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers moved from Brooklyn and right. Ebbets to, and the song is just a homage to the 50s and living in New York City. And the song just, I just fell apart. That's how great it was. And the man has more to give than he has been given credit for. And uh, I'm sorry, I hope he hears this, but uh, as, as much as uh, I would like to say, well, he didn't feel like being on my show because I wanted to put him on with this show, um, I consider him an incredible talent, despite the fact that he may be a little bit full of himself. He should be. He's an well, amazing it, it, man. You still there? It's, yes. a shame, it's a shame you can't get or some of these... You know, older performers that have made this history won't come down. I'm working or, on it. Won't I'm get working on, on it. That would, that would be great. I mean, just to pick their minds, what it was like at that time, and going through the experiences of creating the genre of music and making history. Well, I'm working now. I have gotten in touch with um, Joe Bennett of the Sparkle Tones. Uh, I'm waiting to hear back from him. Uh, I have uh, something in with... Uh, Clarence Frogman Henry, I'm trying to get a hold of him. So, you know, some of these guys you can still have access to, whereas people like Dion, it's a little harder to get and, uh, because they're not, they still think that, uh, you know, they're superstars, which they are. So, you know, uh, I, I apologize if, if I come off a little bit nasty with them. Uh, you know, I know I never could get a Chuck Berry or a Fats yeah. Domino. 
but there are people out there, and uh, you know what was the funniest? Uh, you know, because I've done interviews with Charlie Gracie and uh, Arlene Smith of the Chif- of the Chantels, and uh, of course the Elegance and and uh, Eulen Duvall, who's just a great guy, and uh, he just produced a brand new. Um, Christmas record called Rock and Roll Santa Claus, which I'm playing on my Christmas show. So I've already done these, and I'm trying to get as many as I can, and I will. But uh, it's interesting that people like Dion, who, as I said, is an incredible talent, and he probably knows he's an incredible talent and thinks that much of himself, and I have no doubt that he has every right to. And But the fact is that he needs to get his message out that he not only is an incredible talent, but a nice person. And I think he would have done well on the show. Uh, Unfortunately, he didn't. But that doesn't mean that that show isn't just as good. Uh, And it gave me actually more time to play some of his music, which I really enjoyed. I would look, as as an educator's point of view, I mean, you're getting, they're getting a chance to get history out to newer generations and future generations that have not grown up with this music. I know when That's I do this true. music in my, in my public school classroom with my fourth graders, they love mm-hmm. it. And mm-hmm. it's like they, they want to listen to this more than some, you know, most of the time more than what they want, what they're used to hearing on the radio, sure, sure. On their iPods, and they just they enjoy it so much. Uh, I have a couple questions for you, if you have sure. time. Sure, okay. I got it. You said something about Alan Freed's son uh, promoting his father's uh, record and le- records and legacy. Where is he located at that he's doing this? AlanFreed.com, um, and it's uh, he's in uh, California somewhere. Okay. And okay. It's, a, it's a nice site. Matter of fact, most of the uh, – he even has the playbooks up there, you know, that they uh, put out there, and most of them are mine. Okay, AlanFreed.com. Alan Freed, right. Al, Alan Freed or Al? AlanFreed.com. Okay, Alan Freed. Okay, next question for you. During the 50s, there were two, there was a team of prolific songwriters, Lieber and Stoller. Yes. What's your take on the importance of them and where would the music band uh, without them, the performers, without having two gentlemen of that caliber writing lyrics and music for, for this genre? How do you put something like that? That's a hard question for me because in, in, in essence, of course, they wrote, uh, I think they wrote Don't Be Cruel also uh, for Elvis, but if you look at it, it's very hard that, he, yeah, he did, they did Smokey Joe's Cafe, and they did uh, so many of the Coasters songs, and they did a lot of stuff, but in the overall scheme of things, there were Howard Greenfield and, and Neil Sedaka, right. and there was Jerry Lee Lewis, and there was... Uh, uh, Neil Diamond, and there was Barry Manilow, and there was uh, Dion, and there was uh, Chuck Berry, and you know, it's it's hard to take two great songwriters and not give them their due, but in, in a in a um, big wide spectrum, if there was no Lieber and Stoller, would it have made a difference on rock and roll? I don't think so. Well, how about the what about the individual performers that needed their uh, needed someone such as them to write their music or lyrics for them? Well, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't uh, complete. I mean, 
you had Elvis, he, he did a couple of Libra and Stolen numbers. Would he have survived without them? Yes. And I'm not to say that they're not great, because they are. Mm-hmm. But but I don't think, look, we had, uh, you had Fats Domino and, and Dave Bartholomew writing music. You had Little Richard writing his music. You had Larry Williams writing his music. You had uh, Chuck Berry doing his and Bo Diddley doing his. And, and all these performers, uh, the, the coasters may not have had a, as, as great a run without them. Um, yeah, I mean, would Elvis have, have, have survived without Don't Be Cruel? Yeah. So I, I don't want to belittle their, their, um, their importance, but I don't think it, it would have made a difference in the long run of rock and roll. And that's not to say that they weren't a great group, a great group of songwriters, because they were. But I just, and it's very important to the genre, but the genre would have gone on. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. But I know most of the artists in that time did not write their own music. So these guys, these two gentlemen. That's not, that's not so. Oh, really? Uh, I mean, you've got to remember that these little kids that started out, that made rock and roll what it is, uh, they wrote their own music because they couldn't get anybody to write for them. Uh, what about uh, Carol King? She wrote "Why Do Fools Fall in Love." I mean, uh, these—they they were out there on the street corners performing and making these things up. There, uh, you know, it was only the the high quality performers that could afford Lieber and Stoller. So when you're when you're dealing with Performers like Dion, they, they wrote their Dion wrote their own music. Good point. They did this, you know. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a moot point. Uh, these guys that were sitting on the street corners, you know, and I'm talking about hundreds of groups on every street corner corner in in the New York City and Brooklyn, um, wrote their own music. And if they were lucky enough to get Alan Freed or somebody else to listen to it, they they did it. Um, Jay's the Isley Brothers back in 56, 57 wrote, I want to know. They couldn't get a Lieber and Stoller at that time to write their music. Uh, the Hollywood Flames, uh, you know, um, Little Darling was written by Maurice Williams of, of the uh, Zodiacs. They didn't have the, the money to, to get a Lieber and Stoller to, to write their music. So they were important in, in their own right, uh, but Rock and roll would have survived, and that is not to say, again, I don't want anybody to, to write me one of those dirty, nasty letters saying, uh, you know, how dare you, you know, uh, diminish what Lieber and Stoller did. I'm not. Uh-huh. But it would have, so you, your question was, would, they, would rock and roll have been different? It may have been different, but it would have still been what it is. Well, my last question for you before I have another student call in, you were in New York in the mid-60s or early 60s when the Beatles came over? Yes. What was the atmosphere like with the radio stations trying to cover them and get, and their, get, their, uh, get some interviews or get, you know, just the news coverage? Well, the, the, news coverage big. the news coverage was big. Um, what happened was we had this very foolish disc jockey in town by the name of Murray Kaufman who went under the uh, pseudonym of Murray Decay. And he wanted to call himself the fifth Beatle. So he would run, he ran over to, to England to try and get uh, uh, a head start on all the rest of them. And he would, uh, you know, he would 
they did a, he was on WYNS, which was the big station at that time, and he decided that since they had the ABC backing, uh, he went along with the Beatles, he introduced the Beatles, uh, and all that stuff, and uh, so he would get the idea of being the fifth Beatle. Um, at that time, honestly, I could not care less about the Beatles. Uh, most of the girls were in the Beatles, not the guys. Um, we were still listening to the real rock and roll, and uh, we thought that the hair was silly. Uh, the girls thought it was cute, and that was fine. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, I knew none, no girl from Brooklyn. This is just the people that I knew from my high school that went to that show. I mean, yeah, they went to Shea Stadium and they had a big deal. And uh, uh, I guess for 20 bucks a seat, that wasn't, you know, it's not bad. But uh, I, I can't tell you that I uh, saw a great deal of it because uh, it, it didn't matter to me at the time. The Beatles became big. I mean, I loved, I liked their records. They were okay. Uh, but uh, I don't think I saw... The media coverage, yeah, they had every station was there. Oh, they got off the plane and they, they showed the screaming from, and that they couldn't hear any, they couldn't hear one word. That sound system was not made for the. Remember, there was no such thing as roadies in those days, and the acoustics in a baseball stadium is not good. Well, what amazed me, I, unfortunately, I was not old enough to be there. I was only fourteen, and I couldn't get there. But from the video I've seen. And you know, on the history of it, how they could even sing and hear themselves on that little stage with those little amplifiers. That mm -hmm. crowd screaming was it was amazing. And well, yet, not with well, two years before you were they were playing for a uh, hundred people in Germany. Uh, it wouldn't matter to them. You know, they just played their music. They didn't care with the screaming. They could make a, a million mistakes and nobody would have heard it. And I guess. I guess the best um, person that I, that I could think of was uh, that great performance uh, that uh, Alan Sherman did called "I Hate the Beatles." Pop hate the pop hates the Beatles, and it was uh, an incredibly funny song that was that was absolutely true to form back in '64, '65. I'm not familiar with that. Do you have a copy of that? Oh yeah. Yeah, it was, as a matter of fact, I think I've played it on my one of my shows uh, in the in the past. Basically, he said, um, "What was it? Ringo is the one with the drums. The others all play with him. Uh, it shows what a boy can become without a sense of, sense of rhythm." Ooh! So, <laughs> so incredible stuff. Uh, you got to hear that. Uh, if not, I'll send you a copy of it and, and let you take a listen to it. But it's quite cute. Okay, I have one more student that's going to call in. Uh, he's calling back in. It's Eric. And yeah, he has okay. a question or two for you, and then we'll probably be able to wrap this up. Okay, I want okay. to make, make one comment before I take Eric's call. You know, it's funny that uh, my wife has a cousin in, um, I think, eastern Pennsylvania. It's about and, an hour uh, Yeah, and, and the funny thing is, is that each and every guy that I've spoken to today Sounds exactly like him. Really? So, yeah, yeah. It, it, it must, same sound, same deepness, same uh, effect, affectation. Everything is the same. So, anyway, Eric, you're on the air again. All right. Uh, 
One question. Do you think the evolution of music has progressed or degressed from, like, the 50s as music pertaining to today? Okay, here's where I get to be a stinker. <laughs> you bet. I think music today has reached a brand-new low. Um, I still work with middle school kids to, to a degree, and the music they li listen to is horrific. Um, I'm not going to... Uh, push the, the fact that uh, the, the, the people like uh, David Cook and David Archuleta and uh, Jordan Sparks that came out of American Idol are not good singers. They are great singers. They have long careers. But they're not, the, they're not the, in the forefront yet. There's the, the crap that the, that the kids are listening to today, and I apologize if that offends anybody, um, is, is just beyond the scope because not only is, are the lyrics disgusting in many cases, although I know a lot of people who were uh, detractors of rock and roll in the 50s thought that every song had a, an ulterior motive. Uh, songs like, uh, what was it, uh, Let Me In, and uh, the fact that, that the word rock and roll back in the 50s really meant having sex. So uh, a lot of it can, can be uh, pushed this way, but... I think the idea of, of uh, rap as an art form is missing something. Uh, I argued this with Arlene Smith of the Chantels, and she, she was a teacher also, and she said that they have to have a means of expression. And I understand that, but just like, and I said to her, but you expressed it in a way that was beautiful and not detracting or insulting to anybody, and, but, but they don't feel that way. And I'll be honest with you, I'm hoping that if, uh, with, with the uh, election of our new president at least, that maybe they will think a little higher of themselves, and I'm talking about the Afri African-American children, that they will think a little bit higher of themselves and not have to uh, insult their own kind and their own females with detracting statements. And uh, I think that rap is... is uh, just not an art form. I mean, it's it's just an anger. It's it's a way to show your anger without killing somebody. And unfortunately, the rap artists are killing each other anyway. Yeah. Uh, so the pop music scene is um, still out there, but it's it's not being bought by. And and I'll be honest with you, um, listening to pop music, it's almost I can't tell one from the other. I honestly cannot tell one artist from the other especially the female artists, which seems to be in the majority today, they all sound very much alike. And I, I, I just, I can't get into it. I stopped listening to music in the very, in the mid-80s, honestly. Uh, I was actually a big fan of, of uh, hard rock. I love ZZ Top and I love um, uh, Metallica and those things because I thought they were great musicians whereas I don't think that you can call any of these. They may be singers, they may be performers, but I don't consider them musicians. Okay. Okay? Thank you. All right, you're welcome. Bye. Bye. Lee? Yeah. It's Bruce again. Uh, as usual, very interesting, very informative. Yeah, I speak too much, but then again, I'd like, I, I wish sometimes I could get the uh, kids to... To, and, I, and I apologize for these. They're not exactly kids, all of them, but to me, everybody's a kid. Even you are. And, uh, I, but I, 
I would like to uh, to to hear their reaction to the individual singers and what they think. That would be an interesting way to do another show. Okay. To, to actually have your next class give them have them critique what they thought of the artists. Which ones? Now, the uh, the older ones or the newer ones? Oh, the the older ones, sure. You know, it'd be interesting to see what they think of it, how they would critique them, and 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 how they would stack up among today's artists. It might be interesting on our next go round to try that. Well, maybe but, these students in their you know when they have some free time and they get to listen to your uh, your uh, shows that you put on. Now you you do these usually at night, right after midnight or around midnight. Well, remember, I do it at midnight. I put up the shows, but they're always available. And, uh, you know, I'm just, when you get old, you, you don't sleep anyway, so it doesn't matter. Uh, so I'm up just to put them on. But, uh, you know, they can listen to it any time, day or night. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe uh, some of them will be able to have some time and maybe just email you some of their comments or their thoughts. Absolutely. On and remember, they can always request any song by going to oldtimernr at hotmail.com, and they could request any song from the 50s, 60s, and early 70s. As right. always. And, uh, and the other comment I wanted to make was that as part of the requirements, now our students have to put five hours of uh, time in what they call WebCT, where we have to interact. And right. instead right. of sitting there and having dialogue back and forth, I've made it a requirement that they listen to five hours of uh, your broadcast, and everyone comes back with a positive comment on all your shows, how enjoyable they are, how informative, and they will be a steady listener. Oh, I would love that. That would that would be great, and je- definitely they got to listen. Uh, I have some really incredible songs coming up, and uh, I'm doing some incredible. I've been doing a lot of research myself on my uh, uh, Long Black Cadillac on Long Black Lim- Limousine 2008, and I found out some interesting things that are going to take up almost the entire show about a, a performer which is almost forgotten today by the name of Danny Davis. Okay. And uh, you may remember him as for the Nashville Brass, but when when that you, going up? that'll go up uh, as close to whatever new, the closest day to New Year's. New Year's is New Year's Eve is Wednesday, and that's when I put my show up. So I'll probably put it up the day before. But that's also yeah. going to be an interesting show, and uh, stuff I found out really is going to make you see how important this man was to the industry. Very interesting. So oh, well, anyway, as always, I appreciate I appreciate you doing this and. Uh, we will always continue, and uh, just let me throw in my usual uh, two cents. If anybody has even two cents to throw into our little uh, donation pot there, go to oldtimernr.com and click on the Donate button at the uh, Special Information section and help us keep old-time rock and roll alive. Okay, they heard it all. Okay, thank you, Bruce. As you see you again soon. Uh, thank you. I appreciate your time that you spend with us and our students here in Alvernia. And uh, since I am not politically correct, have a Merry Christmas. <laughs> I have, I, like I said to everybody, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, cool Kwanzaa, and whatever else is left. Hey, you too. Take care. Thanks. Okay. I'll be in touch. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. There you have our, our show for this evening. 
this is a little special show, so we're not going to go out the usual way, I guess. But uh, we'll see you all on Wednesday with our Dion and the Belmont retrospective special. We'll see you then. In the meantime, this is Lee Douglas. That's a wrap. See you later, alligator. See you later, alligator.